0: The Water Values Podcast, Session 66. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Today we've got a great guest speaking on an important topic. Before I introduce him, however, let's hit some housekeeping items. First, if you haven't done so, don't forget to take the Water Values Listener Survey. I've hit a number of the topics that you've requested, such as psychology last week or the last episode with Shazatari, Atari and several technology podcasts, such as Jeff Favina's No Waste Main Flushing and Parjana's Technology for Surface Water Mitigation and Groundwater Recharge. And for my Danish listeners, I've made contact with your requested guest, and he is interested, but nothing has been scheduled as of yet, so hopefully soon. Uh, Finally, from a housekeeping perspective, uh, please don't forget to rate, and equally as important, please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast directories on which you listen. That'll really help get the word out about the podcast. Well, on to today's show. Today, I welcome Frank Holloman. Frank's a lawyer with the Southern Environmental Law Center. He's going to discuss the problem of coal ash and its impact on water quality. The Kingston and Dan River coal ash bills in the southeast have brought increased scrutiny on the practice of coal ash disposal. And in fact, the EPA issued new coal ash rules to address the problems of coal ash disposal. And the rules have become a political issue with the House recently passing H.R. 1734. And of course, President Obama then indicated he would veto that bill if it ever passes the Senate and reached his desk. In any event, Frank educates us about coal ash, its contaminants, its historical method of storage, the new methods of storage or reuse, and perhaps most importantly, the changed and changing nature of how utilities are approaching coal ash storage. That, to me, is the silver lining of the story that Frank tells. Coal ash has some issues, but there is a lot of positive movement in how coal ash storage is being dealt with, and I think that's really going to come out uh, in, in in the story that Frank tells us. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Frank, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. And to start off, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water, please?
1: Well, I live in the upper part of South Carolina and uh, for years have been active in conservation, land conservation. We've been protecting mm-hmm. Rivers, trout streams, uh, uh, seeps, and water sources, sort of the headwaters of some of our major rivers. Uh, four years ago, I changed careers, really. I'd been a standard uh, a commercial attorney in uh, South Carolina. And I joined the Southern Environmental Law Center, where, of course, one of our major goals is to protect water quality in the southeast. Uh, so for the last four years, I've been working on this topic, not only as a volunteer in a land trust capacity, but also as a full-time job at the Southern Environmental Law Center.
0: Well, terrific. Now, you say that uh, the Southern Environmental Law Center helps protect water quality in the southeast. What are the mechanisms it goes it uses to accomplish that mission?
1: Well, we work... Uh, both in the courts and out of the courts. Uh, We're an advocacy group. Probably more than half of what we do is outside the courts, but we also are willing to go to court to protect rivers and uh, lakes and water supplies. So, for example, uh, we'll be talking about our effort to clean up coal ash pollution. Uh, We also push municipalities and counties to ensure their sewage treatment plants comply with their permits and, don't leak and seep and overflow into our rivers. Um, we uh, work to defend and protect and promote wetlands and river and creek protection because buffers and and other uh, policy decisions are so important to protecting the quality of our water. Uh, and we fight direct pollution. Sources. For example, sometimes unwise highways can be one of the worst things you can do for a major water system. So we do the whole range of things advocating uh, for protection of key lands and water supplies and also um, taking direct action to protect against pollution sources.
0: Okay, terrific. And you mentioned coal ash. Uh, could you could you give us some background on what exactly coal ash is and why it is a water quality issue? Well, it was uh, really a water
1: quality issue I wasn't aware of until I came to the Southern Environmental Law Center. But the United States Environmental Protection Agency says half or more of all the toxic pollution that goes into our rivers comes from coal ash storage by utilities. Wow. Uh, And uh, when you generate electricity from coal, you need two things. You need coal and you need water. So these electrical plants that use coal are situated right next to our waterways, as in general, uh, electricity plants are. And believe it or not, I found this hard to believe when I started on the project, but it's true throughout most of the country. Our utilities, which have tremendous financial resources and great engineering capacity, they have historically stored this ash and store it today in large unlined pits full of water right next to rivers and drinking water supplies that are held back by dikes made of earth that leak. And, of course, it doesn't take any super chemist or geologist to figure out if you store tons of industrial waste next to rivers in unlined pits full of water pollution is going to get into the rivers, groundwaters, and lakes and that's exactly what has happened. As hard as it is to believe that's what has been going on and is going on today.
0: Hmm. Now what kind of contaminants are included in coal ash?
1: Well there coal is a mineral. Uh, Of course it comes from the earth and when you burn it you take out all the carbon or a lot of the carbon is burned out. So you have a concentration of what remains. And unfortunately, what remains are trace elements when in higher quantities are dangerous pollutants like arsenic, uranium, radon, lead, hexavalent chromium, mercury, and zinc, a whole wide range of heavy metals, as well as sulfates and pH issues that can have... Significant impacts on waterways, rivers, fish systems, and uh water supplies uh and many and in addition, you have the pollution of a catastrophic failure which dumps the contents of the lagoons into the river itself in a mm-hmm. massive failure. We've had that happen twice in the southeast in recent years, and it's happened in other parts of the country, too.
0: Well, let's explore that last issue a little. A little. You mentioned the lagoons. So, so let's walk us through how exactly this coal ash is stored.
1: All right, what happens is they burn this ash, <clears throat> burn the coal, and they left with ash. Well, one option is you could put it in trucks, move it some distance away from the river, and put it in a line of landfill or in rail cars if you're going to take it further. But instead, uh, historically, this has been an out-of-sight, out-of-mind process that the utilities have not applied their engineering expertise to. So what they do is they take water out of the river and use it to what they call sluice or flush this ash away from the plant. Uh, And, of course, when you flush something, you go downhill, not uphill, so it goes down toward the river to big pits. And they've dug huge pits. These are big pits in the ground right next to these waterways. By and large, so they are not lined. Some of them are old gravel pits. Some of them are decades old. Some even go back to the 20s. And they just flush, or they call it sluice this ash in a wet form, usually through a ditch, rip rap. Sometimes it'll be a pipe. And it, then it goes into these lagoons, which catch rainwater, and also because they're sometimes they're literally in a swamp, but they're next to a waterway. They collect water naturally. Plus you've got this sluice water. So you've got me, literally millions of tons. All these lagoons have millions of tons of, of this industrial waste. In wet form, in a, like a little lake, a big lake, 50, 90 acre lake right next to the river. And then they don't have, you might expect, well, you'll have a big concrete dam like you do at Hoover Dam or somewhere to hold this stuff back. But no, it's an earthen dike, just like a farm pond. So it's an earthen dike and those things leak. And they also fail. So many of these have tremendous, large flows of polluted water that just come out of the sides, bottom, of these lagoons, millions of gallons a day flowing directly into the river, and of course the groundwater is constantly contaminated because the pits are unlined and they are filled with water, and that inevitably seeps into the groundwater. Many times, uh, for example, one site where the coal ash is 18 feet into the groundwater table, uh, oh, it's not wow. sepa- they, generally they're not separated from the groundwater table. Uh, so you've got massive sources of industrial pollution. Really, something you might expect from the 19th century, but it's still being operated in the 21st century.
0: Hmm. Now, but but haven't the utilities gotten permits for these? Aren't they operating legally?
1: Well, they get uh, they they do have permits, but they also operate illegally as well as in some respects legally. Uh, historically, the uh, our regulatory agencies when confronted by these things largely predated the clean water act when the clean water act came into place the utilities uh, did succeed in getting them permitted as wastewater treatment facilities because you know you can't just get a permit just to dump industrial waste into a river you have to have rationale and a treatment scheme so they're supposed to protect their waterways from the pollution because these lagoons operate as wastewater treatment facilities. And they're supposed to discharge from one defined spot after water that has been treated. However, and you know, wastewater treatment facilities are supposed to contain the pollution they treat. Otherwise, it's pointless if it just they just disperse it into the environment. Well, so that's the legal system under which they operate. <clears throat> However... They can't comply with these permits, and they routinely violate the law, and they can't comply with them in several ways. One is they leak, so they have unpermitted, illegal flows of pollution other than this treated site, supposed treated discharge. The other thing is they're supposed to contain pollution, not distribute it out of the sides and bottom. So they, since they contaminate the groundwater, they often violate clear black-ladder routine provisions for wastewater treatment facilities in their permits. And then, of course, when they fail, they commit a violent violation of their various uh, permit requirements. There are also other laws that they violate. Sometimes they violate a federal law called the Resource Conservation Re- um, Recovery Act, which lawyers call RICRA. Uh, sometimes they'll violate local anti-pollution laws because they're leaking into the groundwater and rivers. Uh, and sometimes they violate criminal laws. Uh, Duke Energy has recently pleaded guilty to nine federal crimes, violations of the Clean Water Act at its at various coal ash sites across the state of North Carolina. So uh, they, many of them have permits. They all have permits of one type or another. Um, but uh, but we have found it's ver- these facilities because they're so primitive that they are almost designed to fail as a legal matter. Hmm.
0: So talk about the criminal. You mentioned the the Duke Energy criminal pleas. What's the basis for that? How, how do you get criminal uh, violations out of this? The, you know the, this wastewater treatment process that coal ash. Uh, storage and and permits go through
1: well uh, the clean water act has very strong criminal provisions that uh, ought to concern anybody who operates one of these facilities under the clean water act a negligent violation of the act is a crime a knowing violation is also a felony so it has very strong criminal provisions Uh, What happened in North Carolina is that uh, Duke pleaded guilty to nine crimes. Uh, Several of them deal with these unpermitted discharges, flows of water that the utility has known for years have been coming out of these lagoons directly, in one instance, into a drinking water reservoir for Charlotte, North Carolina. Some of them deal with uh, improper and failed maintenance. At the Dan River spill which involves two of the crimes, Uh, the Department of Justice discovered that uh, Duke Energy employees had asked management to give them the funding to inspect the pipe that ultimately broke and that Duke had been warned about by its dam safety inspections and EPA inspections for like 30 years. But Duke management denied the request for a few thousand dollars to inspect the pipe that rotted and broke. Uh, so the, uh, all that uh, poor maintenance, refusal to inspect, unpermitted discharges, uh, all those were found to be crimes at sites across the state. Some of those crimes dealt with the Dan River site, but some dealt with sites that had no spill, no catastrophic failure at all. But uh, criminal activity just in connection with the normal operation, usual operation of these facilities.
0: Sure, and so you we've mentioned these two spills in in the southeast what is the impact of those spills what happens when they when the coal ash spills into those rivers and waterways
1: well you have millions of uh, gallons thousands of tons of coal ash and coal ash pollution hit the river so for example at dan river Duke's second smallest site in the two Carolinas. In other words, there's 16 sites in the Carolinas. This is number 15 in terms of size. One pipe, just one stormwater pipe corroded and broke. That resulted in 39,000 tons of coal ash and 24 million gallons of coal ash polluted water hitting that river. Once that happens, Duke has proven you can't clean it up. Uh, They managed to clean up less than 10% of the ash. Uh, Of course, when it hits the waterway, it kills what lives on the bottom because it just suffocates it. Then if you have a drinking water intake downstream, you've got a real crisis. For some period of time, you may have to eliminate that source of drinking water. One downstream uh, town was able to do that. One wasn't because this was their only intake. They managed to manage this crisis and continue to provide drinking water during the initial spill, but it was a close-run thing. And now we've got this heritage of coal ash pollution, this special dumping, in addition to what had been going on in the Dan River for years, that is there to affect the ecosystem from now on. To date, uh, Duke has been fined $102 million for its crimes. Virginia has proposed a $2.5 million additional fine, and community groups are objecting that's too small, and greater charges are in the works for uh, damages to natural resources. Over at Kingston, they had over a billion gallons of coal ash materials hit the river. It damaged homes, great property damage. And we're just fortunate no one was killed at either spill. Somebody been in the river boating, fishing, been near the dams, an employee even of the utilities. It could have been a very serious situation for human health, human life. Uh, so these spills are very dangerous events that have immediate and then also long lasting impacts on communities and river systems.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned they were Duke was able to clean up less than ten percent of the the coal ash spill at the Dan River site. What what are the cleanup issues? Why why is it so difficult to get the get the you know effectuate a cleanup?
1: Well, it's not you know it's not clear to us that more could not have been cleaned up. There have been other industrial spills around the country where more has been cleaned up. But I can tell you why Duke says it's, it, it's impossible for Duke to clean up a spill site. And that is the ash hits the river. Uh, then the river system and flooding and rain events take control. It scatters the ash throughout the system. And they say it would just be too big a job uh, to filter it or suction it all out. One, and number two, they say, well, it might cause more harm than it does good. We don't know if that's true. It's hard to believe that all you could get was 5, 6, or 7% of this ash out. Uh, People who live along the river and boat it report uh, pockets of ash. We don't know that that's true, but that's what Duke says. Of course, the 24 million gallons of water that went in, you couldn't possibly get it out. I mean, it just goes into the ecosystem and the rivers and the downstream lakes and mixes in and uh, the long term effects are are somewhat known. We've had a study by Duke University scientists that show arsenic stays in the ecosystem it doesn't go away, and that when the water and uh, conditions and temperature are right, it erupts out of the sediments back into the water column, and you only know that if you're testing it that particular second when it happens. So uh, we know it's there, we know it's going to be in the food chain, and we know it can come back into the water system. But the full effects won't be known for years.
0: Okay, so with with all this, with the known difficulty in cleaning it up, with the criminal, the the specter of criminal violations uh, and additional Clean Water Act violations, are utilities looking at alternative ways to store coal ash?
1: The good news is that some are, the bad news is that some of them are very reluctant to change. So let me talk about the good news. In South Carolina, there are three major utilities. One is owned by the state government. Two are publicly traded companies. One is Santee Cooper, which is like South Carolina's version of the TVA. It's state-owned and produces electricity for the co-ops. Then we have SCENG, which is part of a Fortune 500 company. And we have Duke Energy, which is the largest utility in America. All of them in South Carolina have agreed to excavate all their old coal ash Lagoons, move all their ash to safe, dry line storage, and they're all quitting the use of lagoons for coal ash storage. So in South Carolina, every one of these sites is going to be cleaned up. In North Carolina, uh, Duke Energy, under a lot of fire, of course, has 14 sites. They've agreed to clean up four, Uh, they're evaluating others. They're committed to going to dry ash handling in the future and have done so at a number of sites. And we hope we'll decide to clean up all the sites in their system. But as of now, there are 16 sites in the two Carolinas and six of the 16 as of now are scheduled for clean Ashes already being moved. And we expect Duke to announce other cleanups as, as the year moves forward. Uh, in Virginia... In uh, Tennessee, it's a mixed story, and in Georgia and Alabama, it's a mixed story. Um, in Dominion, in Virginia, Dominion has said it's going to get all the water out of its lagoons, but so far it has resisted cleaning up the coal ash. It wants to leave the wet ash after the water gets out where it is, and we believe that continues to be risky and also contaminates groundwater and river systems. But it, But they have said wet lagoons are no longer our idea of good management. And also the president of the Southern Company, that is Georgia Power in particular, said at the shareholder meeting this year that they wanted to get out of the wet lagoon business, but they still aren't doing cleanups as in South Carolina and North Carolina. And TVA in Virginia, I mean in Tennessee and Alabama, has committed Uh, to go into dry ash handling, but unfortunately still has wet lagoons and is still violating the law in Tennessee, according to the state Tennessee Environmental Agency. So what we have found is, it's important to remember, these utilities are not your traditional private enterprise companies. They are large bureaucracies. They are, in our region at least, they are state-authorized legal monopolies over electrical produced energy. They're guaranteed to make money by law. They're they're big bureaucracies. They're used to getting their way, and they are set in their ways, and they are slow to change. But some of them, the more progressive ones, and the ones who have had more public scrutiny, uh, they are moving to a more sensible way of storage. And let me say, this is not rocket science technology. We're talking about line-dry landfills. This is how municipalities store kitchen waste. Now, we're not talking about some high-tech, uh, new-age, cutting-edge technology they've got to develop. This is just doing things that industrial companies, municipalities, and counties have been doing for 50, 75, 100 years, putting waste and safe dry line storage away from drinking water reservoirs, outside the groundwater. It's not... Uh, really complicated. It's just basic common sense.
0: Yeah, but in order to find these new line storage facilities, though, that's going to entail a lot of, uh, you know, there's going to be a NIMBY element, there's going to be the permitting element. Uh, are Are there challenges in finding alternative ways to store coal ash?
1: Yes, there can be challenges. Now, there are some, in many situations, fairly simple answers. Uh, One is, Santee Cooper is extensively recycling coal ash into concrete, which is generally accepted as a way that prevents leaching of the pollutants. In many instances, and this is being done in South Carolina and is planned for sites in North Carolina, uh, you can cite the landfills on the same locations where the plants are located in other words the utility usually owns a good bit of land around there and much of it is upland it's out of the wetlands it's out of the away from the river where you can site a landfill and then in some situations you've got already permitted landfills that are open and available to accept coal ash relying storage and some of the ash is going to those. So oftentimes there are solutions that don't cause a lot of problems. When you do have to site a new landfill outside the footprint of the existing uh, plant site or, or adjacent to it, uh, that can cause, you're right, community concerns. And we've seen that in a number of pluses. The concerns are legitimate. Uh, because people ought to be concerned about coal ash storage in their communities. So these are legitimate concerns that are worked through the permitting process and the public notice process and the, uh, the little d democratic process of public hearings and local government approvals as to where uh, they can, and also their geologic and other concerns, whether you can put it in one place or another that sometimes dictate where it can go. Um, the main thing we remain concerned about is that wherever it goes that certain important water protection and community protection standards are in place it needs to be lined away from the river dry storage separated from the groundwater adequate uh, measures taken to deal with whatever water comes out of the site over time and adequate monitoring for example Uh, So we're concerned it be properly done. Um, But you're right, local communities can express concerns, and that can be challenges. That's just part of the challenges of operating in an industrial operation is finding the appropriate place to put your leftover waste.
0: Sure. And now you mentioned reusing it, and concrete was one of the examples. Are there any other uh, instances where, where coal ash is sought to be reused?
1: Well, there are several. There are two that uh, we've considered acceptable, and North Carolina's Ash Commission recently issued a report saying those were the two acceptable uses. Uh, one is to be recycled into concrete. Uh, that can reduce the amount of greenhouse gases because the of cement is a big producer of greenhouse gases, so the less cement you have to make Uh, The less greenhouse gases you emit, and it gets this ash out of these unlined pits. In some instances, we're told it also helps the quality of the cement. Uh, It can also be used for structural fills as long as the structural fill is lined and monitored and has the same protections as a landfill. That's happening at the airport in Asheville. So those are the two good uses for it. There's some other more questionable uses. Uh, Sometimes it has been used in unlined structural fill, and that has resulted in more problems elsewhere, sort of moving the problem around rather than dealing with it. And some people want to use it in agriculture, and that has to be very carefully watched because of the food system, and also, as you know, a lot of agricultural fields are right next to rivers and lakes uh, for irrigation purposes, and also groundwater and aquifers. Uh, so that that right now, that's a very small use of coal ash. And uh, I personally am very doubtful that that will expand, but I think using concrete will expand.
0: Hmm. Um, so... Knowing what you know about coal ash and the water quality issues that are associated with it, where do you see coal ash issues and the related water quality issues heading in the future?
1: Well, I think there's a positive direction. Uh, Four years ago when we started this work, uh, the utilities were basically saying these lagoons are fine. It's nothing to worry about. We're going to keep using them. That was the basic Response: There were a few, one utility in particular, I know I was looking carefully at whether that was a good idea or not. But in general, the major utilities were taking that view. Now, as I said, the leaders of every of the major utilities in our region, they'll say this, lagoons are not a good way to do this anymore. Uh, the head of Duke Energy has said the preferred way is to do this in safe dry line storage away from our rivers. As I said, three of our major utilities are committed uh, committed to do that throughout the state of South Carolina, and we've had seen these other major utility heads say, wet lagoons are not where we want to be. Um, the criminal charges make it clear it's a very dangerous place for utilities to be, as the Dan River and Kingston spills have too, and now we have some uh, min- standards set out by a new EPA rule, which are making every utility in the country give this a hard look. When you put all those things together, people running major utilities I think are reaching the conclusion it's not politically sustainable, it's not environmentally sustainable, it's not economically sustainable, and it's not sustainable in terms of public relations with our communities and customers to keep storing it this way. So I think we're moving in a positive direction, this is very important because, as I said, the EPA says 50% or more of our toxic water pollution comes from these sites. And to get that change is a major improvement in the quality of waters, particularly in the southeast and the Midwest and the mid-Atlantic states where we have a huge share of the coal ash in America stored in this way.
0: That's very interesting. You you kind of alluded to the social license to operate, and and that's one of the impetuses for these utilities changing, in addition to the the criminal issues and the other, you know, the liability issues they're facing. But the, I think that's uh, uh, something I hadn't heard before. Um, well, Frank, you've been actually absolutely fantastic today. For those folks who want to find out more about you and the Southern Environmental Law Center, where can they go to find that information out?
1: Well, like every other group, we have a website, which is www dot southern dot org and it lays out lots of stuff about our work and our efforts to protect the special places and the very very valuable natural resources of our southeastern states
0: well terrific well Frank thanks again really appreciate your time this morning
1: thank you thank you for having me I appreciate it
0: oh you bet we'll talk to you soon Frank bye thank you Well, that was my interview with Frank Holloman, a lawyer with the Southern Environmental Law Center. It was terrific speaking with him. And as I alluded to earlier uh, in the open, my biggest takeaway is that electric utility leaders acknowledge that coal ash lagoons, i.e. wet storage, are no longer the preferred method of coal ash storage. Dry, lined landfill storage where groundwater contamination is minimized are now the preferred methods uh, for coal ash storage. You know, in the past, coal ash lagoons were acceptable, but now that we know better, and perhaps it took a pair of major accidents by two different utilities with significant environmental consequences to get there, but we finally reached the conclusion that wet storage for coal ash is not ideal, and far from it, actually. Another takeaway is the reuse of coal ash. This falls into a storage category, I guess, but as long as we keep burning coal to produce electricity, we're going to need to deal with coal ash. And I like the reuse idea because it converts a waste product into something that's useful. And it saves space in landfills, which themselves are not ideal. So I I really like coal ash reuse. And I I would bet with the ingenuity that's going to go into this uh, environmental issue that we're going to find even more potential reuses for coal ash. Uh, Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 66. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by even emailing me at david at You can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.